just want to add my word of welcome to you here today to Cloverleaf Baptist Church. If you're visiting with us, I'm so glad you've chosen to be here to worship with us. And uh, I'm Pastor Sam, if I haven't had a chance to meet you. And uh, I'd just love to get a chance to talk to you after the service and to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, if you could fill out a visitor's card, we would love to just remain in touch with you. And uh, I just want to add a little bit, too, to what Ryan said. We've got that Bible seminar coming up. I really encourage our whole church family to, to make plans to come to that. Uh, we don't do Saturday events very often around here, but when we do, I really want them to be something that we value. We've got a tremendous speaker coming in, and so I want to just ask our church family to make plans to come to that. And even if you're not part of our church family, come on out to that apologetic seminar. Learn how to defend your faith. Learn how to give reasonable answers to the questions that are being asked in our increasingly secular world. Bring friends. Invite people you know. We've got a Facebook event for that, and uh, so we want to just encourage you to, to be part of that event coming up on May 22nd. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today. Here at Cloverleaf, we believe in ex- expositional preaching, which means this. We want the Word of God to speak. And so that means what we do in practice is we take books of the Bible and we teach through them verse by verse. And Pam, thank you for reminding me. Children are dismissed to Children's Church at this time. All children through the third grade, head on out. If you desire to go to Children's Church, I'm just getting rolling into my message, forgetting about the kids. And I hope you all have a good time out there. Luke chapter 6, continuing on the study. We'll be looking today at verses 27 to 36. Hey, did you all hear about the, uh, the ship in the uh, Suez Canal? Uh, now, I'm not talking about the one that got stuck a month ago and all the memes with a little excavator trying to dig out this huge ship. No, I'm talking about a different ship. It's called the MV Amman. Uh, it's a ship that languished in Egyptian detention for unpaid debts from 2017 until just about a few weeks ago. Uh, there was a story about it the other day in the Wall Street Journal. Here's what caught my attention about the story. The story talked about how a single crew member was trapped on board the MV Amman for four years. Could you imagine being by yourself on a huge cargo ship for four years? No one else on the ship, no one to talk to, nowhere to go. And here's the real kicker. This crew member, his name was Chief Mate Mohammed Aisha. He was not permitted to leave the ship as it was held in detention just outside the Suez Canal in Egypt. So why the four-year impasse? Why was it that Chief Mate Mohammed Aisha was not allowed to leave the MV Amman from 2017 till 2021. Well, the Wall Street Journal explains, quote, To the Egyptian court, Mr. Aisha was the crew member responsible for manning a vessel that couldn't budge until all claims against it were settled. To the immigration office, he lacked the paperwork to come ashore. To his own government, he was another among the millions of Syrians stuck outside their country's borders. So what happened? Here was a ship where the owner of the ship, man by the name Mr. Bin Sanad, refused to pay $21,000 that he owed. And the way that the international shipping industry apparently prevents people from just stiff-arming creditors is they will hold the ship in port until it's paid. Unfortunately, Mohammed Aisha signed a letter from the authorities saying that he would be the responsible crew member. And so legally, he was not allowed to leave the ship until the $21,000 were paid. Here's why the impasse happened. The ship owner who... Listen, let's be honest. If you own big container ships, $21,000 is not a big deal to you. Mr. Bin Sanad was so greedy, he refused to pay the $21,000 and was willing to destroy the life of a 29-year-old crew member for four years, basically solitary confinement for four years, because of this man's selfishness. Yet another story that we see day in and day out in the news about man's selfishness. You don't need me to convince you today that humanity is innately selfish, Selfishness that leads a Mr. Bin Sanad to basically imprison a 29-year-old for four years because he can't be bothered to cough up $21,000. Selfishness that led a Bernie Madoff to scam thousands of people out of millions of dollars. He just passed away recently. Selfishness that, let's be honest, destroys marriages. Selfishness that poisons relationships. Selfishness that splits churches. And selfishness, quite frankly, let's just be brutally honest, that drives... 95% of the decisions we make, who are we thinking about most of the time when we make decisions? Me. It's all about me, right? That pretty much captures the philosophy of the human heart. No matter how it is packaged, it's all about me. In our text today, we're called to the profound opposite of selfishness. The opposite of selfishness is love, Right? And this is not just ordinary love. This is not the kind of love that the Beatles would sing about or the Supreme Court would rule about. This is genuine biblical 
love. Follow along as I read our text. We're beginning in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's corollary to the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say unto you, which here, this is Jesus speaking authoritatively, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer the other also. And then that taketh away thy cloak, or that would be your robe, forbid not to take away thy coat, that is your tunic, also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. We know that is the golden rule. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye for sinners also love those that love them? And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank, that literally, literally, what credit is that to you? For sinners also do the, even the same. And if you lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he, that is God, is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. A call to radical, genuine love. Right now, this is not spoken to the world, to those who don't know Jesus as Savior. Verse 27, I say to you, which hear, which are listening, which heed and hear the voice of Jesus. To those who have been, in our terminology today, in our service today, have been born again. Those who received a new nature from Jesus. Those who, in a word, are Christians. So if you say, I'm a Christian today, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. This is how he calls you to live. This is his standard. Quite simply, God calls us as his people to genuine love. And we know there's a lot of fakes in our world today, a lot of fakes that love, uh, basically lust masquerading as love. Love that is what Jesus described, I'll do nice things to people so that I get nice things back to me. You know, I'll help my neighbor out in this hurricane because, hey, one of these days I'll need his help. We kind of have this mercenary idea. That's not genuine love. Genuine love isn't concerned about me and my benefits and how this is going to help me out, but it is concerned with the other person to the glory of God. So what does genuine love look like? What is the love that Jesus calls us to? What does this look like? What is the standard by which we are all going to be judged? So here's a quick word, an important word. While this is the, the expectation for the Christian, this is also the standard by which righteousness is measured. How do we know what is sin? Sin is anything that fails to line up with this standard the standard of God's word. It's not just, well, avoid murdering people, avoid robbing banks. What God requires of the world is that they love like this. That is a standard which leaves every one of us condemned. This is a standard that is divinely required but humanly impossible. Something's going to have to give. God's going to have to do something in our hearts. So what does this look like? What are the characteristics? I want to give several characteristics today of genuine love. First off, genuine love is selfless. Talked about selfishness in the introduction. Genuine love is selfless. Jesus says, love your enemies, verse 27. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. He jarringly pairs these words that we normally juxtapose against each other. Love and and hatred. Doing good to those who mistreat you. He calls us to a selfless attitude. He says, love your enemies, in verse 27. Speaking to those who hear. By the way, the measure of what is a genuine Christian, a genuine Christian is one, yes, who believes in Jesus, and here's what that looks like. You hear and heed his word. Do you hear and heed the word of Jesus? Not just, I prayed a prayer one time, but is that seen in your life? Jesus begins describing this kind of love that marks the Christian, and and he's going to employ four really punchy commands. Love, do good, bless, pray. In In the Greek, these are present imperatives, which means this. It's not just something you do one time. Well, I love that one enemy one time, I'm good to go, but this is a way of life. Be loving your enemies, be doing good to them that hate you, be blessing them, be praying for them, even in the midst of while they are still mistreating you. This is the way of life for the Christian. And by the way, we see this over and over again throughout the scripture. In the book of Leviticus, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus says the great commandment, love God, love your neighbor. The book of Romans says love is the fulfillment of the law. 1 John over and over again says, love one another. It's about every book in the New Testament calls us to love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, of all the virtues, love is the greatest. 
So what does it mean to love? I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that there are several different words that are used in the New Testament to describe love. There is phileo, that is the brotherly love, the natural affection, relational kind of love. There is eros, which is the sexual kind of love. And then there's this word, agapao, which we've heard, agape love, the greatest. Really, in the original language, this is the most generic of the words to describe love. This is the word that would have just been used day in, day out. It didn't really have any special meaning. It is the Bible that invests this word love with a whole different meaning. For God so loved the world that he gave. So the word of God takes this generic kind of love and elevates it and gives it a whole different kind of idea. Now, this is a command. He doesn't say, like your enemies. We're not naturally inclined to like them. He says, love them. This is volitional. This is a choice. This is a love that appeals not to the emotions, but to the will. Make the choice to love your enemies. It's not a feeling. It is a choice. If you look on through the verse, he describes. So that first command, love your enemies, is kind of the overall heading. And he's going to say, here's what I mean by that. Do good to them. Okay, action. Bless them. That is, speak well of them. Pray for them. This is love that is going to be seen in actions. Let me give you a definition for love. Genuine biblical love is seeking to do the other person good, even at great cost to yourself. I might even add to it, it is seeking their greatest good, even at great expense to yourself. So saying, what is the best thing that can happen to them? What's the most important thing? They know Jesus. I'm going to seek after that. I'm going to seek to meet every need to that end. Obviously, this is far different than any kind of love the world has. Jesus says later on in the text, hey, if you love people who just love you, there's nothing special in that. You, you, gangsters love each other, right? Criminals love each other. People who don't know Jesus love each other. It doesn't take any special grace to be able to do that. But to love your enemies, that is far different. Enemy, those who are hostile to you, those who hate you. This is a far different vision of love than anything this world offers. This is not about liking someone who has the same personality. This is not having common interest with someone who cheers for the same football team or votes for the same candidates. This is love for those who have active hostility towards you. Now, in the context, we've been talking about persecution. Back in verse 22, he says, Blessed are you when men shall hate you. That's what's just happened in the context, right? And shall separate from you and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So when people hate you for the cause of Christ, he says, you must love them. Selfless, right? This is not about me trying to get even, but selflessly seeking the good of even my enemies. He goes on to say in verse 27, look at the text, love your enemies, way of life, do good to them which hate you. Literally, be doing good to them which are hating you. It's not, okay, people who hated me in the past, when they finally come around, then I'll start doing good to them. This is not a quid pro quo kind of thing that if they clean up their act, then I'll be nice, but it's actively love them even in the midst of their active hatred. So we're talking about selfless attitudes, but selfless actions. What does this look like? Do good to them that hate you. Well, Paul gives us a commentary on this. The Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, is sort of the backbone of, the, of New Testament ethics, of like, how should we live? And it's not, no surprise that the rest of the New Testament picks up on these commands. Jump over with me to the book of Romans, chapter number 12. Romans, chapter number 12. Again, Paul talks about how Christians should respond to enemies, how they should respond in persecution. Romans chapter 12, picking up in verse 17, he says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Okay, so don't try and get even and get back and be vengeful. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if possible, as much as lies in you. Live peaceably with all men. Now, verse 19, Romans 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, okay, we're speaking to Christians. This is the way that Christians are to live. Avenge not yourselves. Okay, don't make it your point to be, I'm going to go get even. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. But rather give place unto wrath. For, I, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. In other words, I don't need to be the judge, jury, and executioner. God will settle the accounts in the end. Therefore, okay, since God's the one who will take care of settling injustices in our world, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. You're increasing the judgment that God will eventually bring on him. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Very practical. He says, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink. In other words, meet the needs your enemy has. I heard a, read a story this week about someone who had some horrible neighbors who moved in. Right? They move in next door. Kids come over, graffiti all over the house, breaking windows. 
And this, this individual, this Christian was so angry, was like, God, I hate these neighbors. Would you move them out of here? Convicted by these verses, says, God, you need to help me love my neighbors. And so this individual got a list and says, if I were to show love to my neighbors, what would that look like? What are ways that I could serve them? And she made a list of all the ways she could serve these, these terrible neighbors. And over time, began to make meals for them and invite them over to the house and babysit the kids and, and help them with their school, just serving, serving, serving. And the day came when the neighbors finally moved out of the neighborhood. And she wept because a love had developed in her heart for those horrible neighbors. Do good to those who hate you. What if you did this in your marriage? Right? Every marriage is going to have tension at times. Husbands, what if you said, I'm going to do good and serve my wife, even when things aren't going super well, right? Even when we've had a little bit of an art, I'm going I'm to make it a point to serve, to put her needs first. What if, wives, what if you did that? What if both couples in a marriage are doing that? I'm going to serve and love the other one, even when they're not necessarily deserving it. Man, a marriage would be so different. What if we did this in relationships in the church? What if we did this even on social media, right? Instead of being like, man, I'm going to rip into people, I'm going to bless those that curse me, do good to them that hate me. That's the next thing he says, bless them that curse you. We're talking about selfless words. Someone curses you, they, they spew vile venom your direction. They call you names. They, they say horrible things, false things about you. I've seen the comments on social media. One person does that, the other person does it back, and boom, before we know it, we've got two people who are both behaving like the devil, one of them who's pretending to be a Christian. The word bless, we think, oh, bless your heart. The idea behind bless, eulageo, we get the word eulogize from it, means to speak well of someone. It doesn't even necessarily mean I'm invoking God. I'm going to speak well of this individual. To say something commendatory, to speak well of, to praise, to extol. Those are all the definitions from BDAG there. When someone speaks ill of you, they're cursing you. They're actively saying horrible things about you behind your back. The tendency is to lash out and get defensive or to try and get even. What if instead as Christians we said, I'm going to speak well of those individuals? When everyone's sort of standing around the the water cooler at work, and we're all talking about the one person who's not there that we don't like, what if I be the person to step up and say, but you know they're really good at fill in the blank? What if I as a Christian step up to say, I'm going to be the one who's going to use my words to build up and speak well of this person, even though they don't deserve it? Selfless love, selfless words. One example I think of that comes to my mind, remember Paul and Silas, they're, they're... they're lied about, they're, they're beaten in the city of Philippi, thrown into the jail, their feet are in stocks, they're at midnight, they're singing praise to God. The jailer, who more than likely was part of the one, one of the individuals who was beating them, uh, is there. There's an earthquake, and the, the doors fly open, the chains fall off, and the jailer springs in ready to kill himself. Now, part, few of, some of us would be thinking, well, he, kinda, he, was, he was a real jerk to me, he deserved No, what does Paul say? Do thyself no harm, for we're all here and then he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Speaking well, speaking words of blessing and of life to this individual, reaching and helping even someone who is an enemy and showing such profound love for him that the man asks an unprovoked question, what must I do to be saved? Their lives were just creating such a conviction in that man's heart, their love, their kindness, their words that he asks that question. The text goes on. Look back, verse 28. It says, bless them that curse you and pray for them which are despitefully using you. What does it mean to despitefully use? It's the word mistreat. It means to treat someone in a despicable manner, to threaten, to mistreat, even abuse. There's an escalation here, right, from enemies to hatred to cursing to despitefully using. We might even be talking about physical violence at this point. It says, pray for those who abuse, who mistreat. Jesus is calling us to do one of the hardest and most impossible things imaginable. Pray for a persecutor. Pray for our enemies. An example that comes to my mind is Jesus himself. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he says, as he is tortured to death on a Roman cross. Stephen does the same thing as rocks are being hurled at him and crushing his bones. He's soon going to be smashed to death by rocks hurled by haters. He says, Father, lay not this sin to their charge praying for the very individuals persecuting him, even when there's no repentance, no love, no kindness shown in their hearts, emulating Jesus. By the way, God would use that and take one of those abusive persecutors and change them. So they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who in a few short chapters is going to be radically converted and will become a great missionary who will who report later on in his life, I used to be an abuser, but God saved me. By his grace, 
says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Do you believe in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? One of the signs that you truly believe that is you will pray for those that you might be tempted to write off as lost causes. What we're seeing here in verses 27 and 28 is a, is a selfless love that is concerned for the soul and the salvation and the well-being even of those who would hate us. It's an extreme example saying this is the way we are called to love. Now, if any of us actually loved this way as a way of life, is anyone who's arrogant enough to say, yep, I've done that all the time? No, the answer is no. There's only one person who's truly loved that way, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says that for a righteous man, people wouldn't die or even for a good man, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse 10 says that if we were, while we were enemies, if God reconciled us while we were enemies, how much more will he save us from wrath to come? As sinners, listen, as sinners who have violated these verses we've just read, we're not just, ah, well, I don't quite measure up. We are actually enemies of God. God hates sin. Sin is basically us saying, God, I hate you. We don't think of it that way. We were more respectable about the way. But in fact, that's what sin is. God, I hate you. I don't want you telling me what to do. And yet for us who hate God, us who reject God, he loves us so much he sends Jesus to die on the cross for us. Standing behind this is not just a, here's a nice way to live your life in this sort of Christian ethic and be nice to your enemies. Behind this stands the cross of Jesus showing us what selfless love looks like. We're called to selfless love. Genuine love not only is selfless, number two, it is sacrificial. Taking this a step further, it's going to cost us something. It is costly. It is generous. So if you notice, verses 27 and 28 gave us four commands, right? There's four commands. Now, Jesus is going to come along and give us four examples. He's, there, there's some amazing literary structure here. Four commands followed by four examples. Verses 27 and 28 are in the second person plural, saying, all y'all, you need to do it this way. Now in verses 30, uh, 29, 30, and 31, we're now going into second person singular. You as an individual. Here's how you respond. Here's what this looks like with shoes on the ground. Genuine love is sacrificial. He's going to give us some illustrations of what that looks like. And unto him that smiteth you, singular, me as an individual, put yourself in this situation. Someone smites you on the cheek. Offer him also the other and him that taketh away your cloak, your, your, your coat, think of your robe, right, that they would have worn in Bible times, forbid not to take away thy coat also, the tunic that would have been worn underneath it. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and to him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. So specific illustrations, and then here's the principle that's being illustrated. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, is how we commonly formulate the golden rule. He gives these illustrations to show... Love, genuine love, is sacrificial. I think it's important we recognize these are illustrations. Um, I've never had anybody try to steal my robe before. Right? I, don't, I don't dress that way. That's something that's unique to the culture. The point here is be generous. Have the sacrificial love that is willing to give to others. So turn the other cheek, Jesus says, if someone hits you. Now, we're dealing in a context here of persecution. This is not just some criminal who's going to come along and beat you up. But context of persecution, someone is going to smite you on the cheek for the cause of Christ. Think about the situation where Christians in the early church are getting expelled from the synagogue because they believe Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah. They would be kicked out of the synagogue, and one of the things that would have happened is there would have been this backhanded slap on the face. To be like, we disdain you, we hate you. This is not a life-threatening blow. This is not someone comes into your house with a gun and is ready to blow your head off. We're dealing rather with someone who's just going to mistreat you and be like, I'm just going to slap you in the face because I can. This is not about injury. This is more about insult. This is not a life-threatening injury, but a shame-inducing insult. Someone smacks you on the face like that. What's the tendency? What's the natural reaction? Man, I'm going to hit them back. I'm, gonna get, I'm not just going to get even. I'm going to make sure they never do that again to anybody else. That's not the attitude of the Christian. Instead of retaliating, instead of retreating, Jesus says you keep on loving. Our tendency is to say, man, this is a toxic relationship. This person's bad news. I'm, I'm cutting off ties. I'm not going to keep loving this individual. Jesus says you keep loving. You keep putting yourself there where you can win them to Jesus, even if they reject you in this kind of way. We're dealing with rejection and insult. 
So this is not meant to be a, hey, here's the national policy of your government. You, you never go to war and you don't have any police. Romans 13 makes it really clear God has given police and government authority the, the responsibility, right, to make sure the evil is punished. Uh, not the, the application, not the context here. He then says, someone takes away your coat, give them the tunic also. Mentioned, we've got to understand first century fashion. Coat would have been the expensive outer garment, right? We picture Joseph with his coat of many pieces. Uh, And then the the, the shirt, the tunic, would have been the knee-length inner undergarment that they would have worn. Jesus is saying, here's a situation. A persecutor is beginning to take away what is rightfully yours. Rather than saying, I'm going to defend what is mine, you you are generous, ready to say, hey, if you need that, I'm going to give you the other also. Again, not meant to be a literal command, because otherwise Jesus, I don't don't mean to be crass here, would would be commending nudism. Oh, give them your underwear as well, is the sense of what this means. Not meant to be a literal, literally go off and give people all of your clothes so you have nothing. But rather, the point here is, be generous, right? Don't be greedy, don't be stingy. Christian love seeks the ultimate good of others, even at great cost. Christian love recognizes that a human soul is worth so much more than money in the bank account. A human soul is worth so much more than my time to sit at home and watch TV. So much more valuable than a car or a house. This is a direct assault on the materialism that is latched, onto the, latched hold in our hearts. Do you view people as more valuable than your stuff, than your time? How do you use your time? Do you view people as sort of an intrusion and my, my home is my castle and once I go and I close the doors, nobody, nobody is ever to be here and never to, this is for me. Or do you say, no, my home is a tool for serving Jesus. My vehicle is a tool for serving Jesus. My time is a vehicle for serving Jesus. I'm willing to give and give. That's the sense as well as the, of the next illustration. Give to him that asks of you. Give to everyone that asks of you. So is Jesus again saying that someone who doesn't want to work and they're just loafing around in the church is like, hey, Jesus had given to him that asks, I'm asking for $100,000 and you have to do it. Well, the answer is no, because 2 Thessalonians 3, and I'll give you this reference, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 13, deals with that situation. There were people in the church at Thessalonica that are like, hey, Jesus is coming back. I'm not going to work anymore. And they were sort of sponging off everyone else in the church. Paul says, don't give him anything. Someone's not willing to work, neither should he eat. Again, so this is not a verse saying that as Christians, you are just sort of indiscriminate and giving to people who don't have need. But it does mean this. It means this. If there is a real need and you have the ability to meet that need, you can and you must. Uh, I think if we are on one side, we sort of are on the side of being well, I don't know if that person really deserves my help. If we're going to err on one side, why not err on the side of generosity? I would rather stand before Jesus one day and realize that I gave to people who misused those resources than to stand before Jesus one day and realize, Sam, I gave you all of this stuff and you hoarded it. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 talks about, hey, if, here's how you know you have God's love. You're willing to lay your life down for the brothers. And he says, If you have this world's goods, you have stuff, you have materialism, and you shut your heart off to your brother who is in need, how on earth can God's love really dwell in you? In other words, how can you call yourself a Christian if you're not generous in meeting needs of people around you? Challenging, isn't it? Challenging. So again, while I'm saying this is not an absolute always just give to everybody who asks something from you, it is saying, Christians, be generous with your stuff, be generous with your time, be generous with your money sacrifice. And then there, here's a challenging one. Okay, we come back here in verse 30, give to every man that asks of thee. Now notice the next clause, and from him that takes away thy goods, ask them not again. So someone comes and just lifts your stuff. They're persecuting, right? Persecution against Christians. And people are like, well, those, per- those Christians now are persona non grata, so we're going to take their stuff. We're going to cancel them. We're going to destroy their reputation. Man, we're going to go to fight. We're going to war. No, he says, just let it go. Be generous. Be willing to let that go. Jesus asks a question in verse 34. If you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have ye? Verse 35, he says, you lend, hoping for nothing again. He says, don't demand repayment. He gives a concrete example, but just think about what this means in broader application. There are some of you who are sitting here today that somebody has wronged you in the past. They've hurt you. They've taken something from you, stolen your reputation, haven't paid you what they should have paid you, stiff-armed you in some business dealings, and you have never let it go. This here is a call to radical forgiveness. I would say it is harder to forgive someone who has wronged you than it is to forgive a debt, 
right, an actual monetary debt. I can go earn that money back again, but I can't get back the hurt that was caused. Jesus is saying genuine Christian love forgives radically. No matter the wrong that was done, no matter if the person is repentant or not, I'm going to forgive. By the way, that's what Jesus did for us. He has forgiven us freely and fully with no requirement that we pay what is owed because he paid what is owed. Ephesians 4.32, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? How? Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Not God because you paid what was owed and so now he's going to forgive you, but because Jesus paid what was owed on the cross. Now, there's going to be some situations that don't fit these illustrations. I noted nobody's ever tried to steal my robe. I don't wear robes, right? So that's not happened to me. Lest we try to wiggle out of the requirement of sacrificial love, verse 31, and as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also so, uh, likewise to them. It says, here is the universal, always applicable command. You meet a situation, and you say, if I were in that other person's shoes, what would I want done to me? He says, do that. Do that. Verses 29 and 30 are illustrations. This is the universal principle. This is the north star to guide us. If you're like, how do I handle this? Hey, Luke 6 verse 31 is the GPS to navigate life's labyrinth of ethical decisions. But how do I deal with this? Do to other people what I would want done to me. So if you were hungry, you're sitting on the side of the road because you just lost your job, stuff's been going really bad for you, you're, you're starving hungry, what would you want other people to do for you? If you're unemployed and you're like, I can't get a job, what would you want in that situation? Man, if you just had a spouse pass away, what would you want other people to do for you? If you're in a situation where you couldn't pay your bills, what would you want others to do for you? If you're in a situation where where things are just falling to pieces in your family, what would you want others to do for you? Jesus says, go do that for other people. And he doesn't just say only do that for Christians. Do that for your enemies. That is the call of sacrificial love. Now, the formation of the command, notice how positive it is. It's not just avoid doing things you wouldn't want done to you. That was a common formulation in Judaism of Jesus' day. So the book of Tobit, which is in the Apocrypha, says, what you hate, do not do to anyone. Okay, that's a good start. Like, man, if I hate it when people cut me off, don't cut other people off. Good start. Jesus is saying positively, hey, if you want people to like, you know, you like it when people let you in on the road, you be the person to do that for others kind of idea. Now, magnify that a thousand times over. Christian righteousness Hey, we all like to think of ourselves as a good, righteous person. This is the standard of Christian righteousness. You say, am I really a sinner? Here is the searchlight of God's truth, of God's standard, to to take a look at our hearts. Christian righteousness, defining sin, is not simply avoiding bad behavior. If I were to ask you this morning, are you a sinner? You would say, well, yeah, kind of, but I've not really done anything really, really bad. The standard God has is not simply have you avoided bad behavior, but have you actively done what is right? It is actively pursuing sacrificial love. This is the standard. You're going to stand before God on judgment day, and he's not going to merely say, hey, did you avoid robbing banks and did you do a good job at work? He's going to say, did you always do to others what you would have had them do for you? And if the answer is no, that is sin that God must judge. That's the entrance requirement to heaven that none of us have met. This sacrificial love finds its deepest motivation and the highest bar, the highest example, at the cross of Jesus. This kind of love makes no sense without the cross. You see, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He says, give people your garments. Jesus has taken the blows that we deserve. He's granted us the robes of his righteousness. He's generously given us what we don't deserve. He's forgiven our every debt. And if you're a Christian, he says, go and do likewise. The only people who can live this way are the ones who have experienced this from Jesus himself. So if you're a Christian, meditate on what Jesus has done for you, what he has given to you, how he has lavished grace and favor to you. And the more I realize that I am forgiven, the more I'll be able to forgive. The more I realize that I have received, the more I will be able to be the one to be the channel for other people. Genuine love, it's sacrificial, it gives. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. But our final point here, and this is the most important is that genuine love is supernatural. I hope you can get that already from the message. This is not something that we ordinarily or naturally do. We might occasionally do this in limited ways on our best days. We don't live this way. We can't live this way. The the selfishness, the sin is so deeply rooted in our hearts. This is a supernatural love. Genuine love is supernatural. 
And by supernatural, I mean it is divine. It is like God. That's why in verse 36, he says, Be therefore merciful, as your Father is also merciful. Okay, it's like God's kind of love. By the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says it even more directly. Be ye therefore perfect. Right? Not just in a human way, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard even higher than sacrificial love, supernatural love. You see, this standard reveals to us divine righteousness. I mentioned a minute ago, this shows us what the standard is. You say, well, I thought the standard's the Ten Commandments. Yes. Standing behind the Ten Commandments is an even higher law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So the Ten Commandments kind of break it down into sort of the, the clearest negative statements of that. But this reveals to us divine righteousness. Now, notice what he does. He contrasts it. Um, He's not going to use threes. The first part of this, he has, you know, four commands, four illustrations. Now he's going to have three illustrations and three commands. Amazing structure here to this. He says, for if you love them which love you, what thank have you? For sinners also love those who love them, verse 33. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have you? For sinners also do even the same. And if you lend of them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good and lend. So notice the threes, three illustrations. If you just do this, that's not good enough. Instead, you need to do this. Jesus contrasts genuine love with reciprocal, and I have it in quotes in my notes, love. Love that gives to get. Let's be honest, most of the time, most of our relationships, most of the times when we put it out there for other people, we're doing so within the back of our minds, rattling around this little motivation that, you know, maybe some good karma will come my way as a result of this. If I love like this, then maybe they will love me in the same way down the road. Jesus, see, Jesus knows the wickedness of our hearts. He knows our self-congratulatory propensities. He knows our self-righteous pomposity. He knows how ready we are to take what he commands and sort of boil it down to be like, yeah, I've done that. And so he exposes our hearts even further. See, we hear a message like this, and maybe you're sitting there and this thought is going through your mind, like, yeah, I get that. Some people struggle with that. But I'm doing a pretty good job of loving other people. Man, I I love my kids. I love my family. I'm nice to people at work. I'm a good neighbor. I, I pay my taxes on time. I'm doing a good enough job. This, verses 32 to 34, being like, good enough is not enough. Jesus says, even sinners do the same. You see that threefold refrain? For sinners do even the same. And when he says sinners, he's not talking about really, really bad people. He's just talking about sort of in Judaism, the people they would sort of look down on. People they'd be like, oh, sort of unclean people and Gentiles and other people like that. People who aren't on the inside, people who we don't look at as sort of like top-notch. He says, even they love like that. There's nothing special about that. What I'm calling to you to is infinitely higher. It is supernatural. We often congratulate ourselves as Christians and be like, well, we have family values. You know who also has family values? People who don't believe in Jesus. It's not something special that we're like, man, we're really doing well because we believe mom and dad should love each other. Non-Christians get that right. Other religions get that right. And we praise God for his common grace in allowing that to be the case, but he calls us even further. Genuine love is spelled out in verse 35. But love ye your enemies, not just the ones who will love you back, but those who will reject your love. And do good and lend Hoping for nothing again. He says, lend even if you don't think you're going to get it back. When you, when you lend without expecting to get, get it back again, we call that a gift. So rather than lending out your money to other people who are in need, being like, hey, this person's really in a tight place, I'll lend them a hundred. No, just give them the hundred dollars, expecting nothing in return. Or you might do this. You might say, you know, I'll lend, I'll give them really good terms because when I'm in a tight space, they'll lend back to me. Is no generous love, costly love. What Jesus is calling us to in verse 35 is to unrequited generosity. You be generous even if you never get anything out of it. You show kindness even if they never show kindness to you in return. He's calling us to unrequited generosity, unappreciated kindness, and even love that is rejected, unreceived love. You agree that's an impossibly high standard. Right, you're like, man, if that's what being a Christian is to mean signing up for, count me out. I don't want to be part of that. Hey, being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus is not this easy believism. I believe in Jesus and I pass, go get $200 and get heaven when it's all done. No, it's a call to a sacrificial life of taking up your cross 
and loving like Jesus loves. Yet, we convince ourselves that God will be content with our mercenary love. How many people have I talked to who I lay out the gospel and they'll be like, hey, on judgment day, I think God is going to kind of give me a pass because I've been nice to people. Mercenary love, I love them so I can get something in return. God is too good and too holy to lower the standard just down to sort of the lowest common denominator of selfish human behavior. My only hope, and your only hope here, is not that we can somehow, by our, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, live this way. My only hope is for God to take the only one who ever loved this way, to take his love and his righteousness and his goodness and put it to my account. That's my only hope, is for the righteousness and the love and the goodness of Jesus, not only to redeem me, but also to be put to my account and imputed to me so God can look at Sam Sinclair and say, Sam has loved like Jesus loved, even when I haven't. And that is the gospel. The word we use in in, in Christian speak is justification. God declaring us to be righteous. God taking the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus and looking at me as if that were mine. That's my only hope. And that is available to all who will put their trust and confidence in Jesus. When I say supernatural love, I mean a love that reveals the standard of God's righteousness, reveals divine righteousness what we're talking about here. It reveals, I mean, it's a supernatural love, not only in that it reveals divine righteousness, but it reveals and revels in divine reward. Verse 35, look at verse 35. It says, so don't love with this mercenary, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back kind of love. But but instead, verse 35, excuse me, love your enemies, do good to them, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. He says, love not with an eye to earthly reciprocity, like, hey, they'll give it back to me, but to eternal heavenly reward. Now, none of us can verify sort of empirically that there is rewards in heaven. I've not spent 10,000 years in heaven to be like, yeah, guys, it's really worth it. We have to take this on faith. This is living by faith. Living by faith means I trust Jesus to save my soul, and I also believe God's promises are so radical and so glorious and so generous, it's it's worth living like this. What John Piper calls Christian hedonism, where I say the reward of who God is is so great, it's worth laying everything else aside for. That's real faith. Now, the reward is not just the mercenary, I do this, I get this back. The reward is not something that is deserved. We could do everything God has commanded us. Listen, if we did everything the Bible commanded us, God would still justly send us to hell because we're sinners. Our our works don't earn our salvation. Our works do not earn God's reward. It's not like, man, you do enough work for me, I give you a big reward. In Luke 17, Jesus tells a parable. He says, if the servants do everything they're commanded, they're still unworthy servants. The master does not owe them anything. The fact that God gives us a reward is not that he's paying us back for what we've done. Rather, it is God saying, I'm so generous, I'm going to lavish a reward that you still don't deserve. Reward is not a payment God gives to us for services rendered. It is an expression of his generosity. And so when we live like this, we're saying, I believe that my father is generous and that he is ready to reward those who diligently seek him, and I'm going to show that to the world. I'm going to show the world how big and awesome my God is by living the way that he commands. This is a faith thing. This is living by faith. So when we say supernatural love, I mean a love, God's standard, a love that says, I believe God's promises. But here's, man, we've been in a paragraph that's full of stunning statements. Isn't this just an incredible paragraph in God's word? It's like looking out at the night sky out west on a dark night where it's just full of brilliant lights. But here's a statement that is like a shooting star across the night sky. Here's an amazing statement in a paragraph full of them. Look back in verse 35. He says, in the middle of the verse, your reward shall be great. And then notice this. And ye shall be the children of the highest. Man, that is just incredible. And I th- he's, he's not just saying, I'm going to give you a reward and this. This is an explanation of what the reward is. The reward is we will be recognized and affirmed as God's children. Now, this is not a case of saying, if you love people, God will bring you into his family. Rather, this is saying... You love people to prove that you are in God's family. In in Hebrew thought, when you call someone the son of someone or something, you're saying they share in the same nature and have the same character of. So Jesus would say that you 
to, to the Jewish people who rejected him, you are children of Satan. It's not that they're literally descendants of Satan, but he's saying you have the same character of Satan. You're, you're, you're full of lies and murder, right? That's what Satan's like. In this context, when Jesus says you will be children of the highest, he's saying you will be like your father. It's one of, one of the awesome things, right, when someone has, has kids, you see, oh, man, it looks kind of like dad, looks kind of like mom, or Abe looks kind of like Ryan. We are, we, you, you see the parents in, or the children, the parents in the children. You see James running around, you're like, hey, he looks like just a miniature Bill, right? We're going to have a kid soon, it'll be the same thing for us. What Jesus is saying, when you love like this, people look at you and say, I see a little bit of your father's likeness in you. We reveal the relationship that we have with the Father. We reveal the character that he has worked in us. Let me put it this way. You are never more like God than when you are kind to the unkind. You are never more like God when you are generous to the ungrateful. You are never more like God when you are loving to the unloving and the unlovable. That's the sense. You're never more like God when you live like this. You will be children of the highest. This is the reward that Jesus speaks of. It's not that I get to heaven and I'll finally get a bunch of money and streets of gold. The reward is I'll get to heaven and I will revel in the presence of God forever. It is the natural reward of that relationship. It would be mercenary, right? C.S. Lewis pointed this out, for someone to marry for money. Right? We all agree, not a good motive for marriage. But it is not mercenary to say I'm going to marry for love. In the same way, it would be mercenary to say I'm going to love so I can get loved back. But it is not mercenary to say, I'm going to love so that I can enjoy God for all eternity and revel in his reward and reveal my relationship to the world. The verse goes on. You'll be children of the highest for explanation. Here's why we're not talking about earning salvation, but rather revealing character. For he himself, okay, it's the sense in the original, he himself is kind to the unthankful and the evil. In other words, God shows his kindness to people who are undeserving. In Matthew's account, Jesus puts it this way. He makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust and causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God shows what we call common grace, right? This grace that is revealed to all the world, to all people. It's not the same as saving grace. But he shows this kindness to all people who don't deserve it and don't merit it. Think about the sun rising. There would be no life on this planet if the sun did not rise, technically, if the earth didn't rotate. By the way, the sun, 93.6 million miles away from the earth. If that were in a different location, further away, we would freeze to death. Just a little bit closer, we would all fry. God, in his grace and in his kindness, put the sun exactly 93.6 million miles away so that life could not just be sustained, but could flourish on this earth every single day. God, in his grace, causes the life-sustaining sun to rise over the wicked city of Mobile, Alabama, a city that deserves his wrath, a city that deserves his judgment, and God in his kindness lets the sun rise in the eastern sky and gives us another day of grace. Yet who thanks him for it? How many of us as Christians even say, God, thanks for the sunrise today? In fact, how many people through history have been like, we're going to worship the sun? Right? Rather than thanking the creator for his creation, we start worshiping it. We do the same with money. God gives us his money, gives us jobs in his common grace. And yet how many turn around and start worshiping the job, become workaholics, become materialists? He causes the rain, the life-giving rain to fall on this planet. You realize if there were no rain, there would be no crops, there would be no food, and we would all die. Yet God in his kindness has created the global circulation with the poles being cold and the equator being warm so that the, uh, there's circulation and rain and rising motion and so we can have precipitation so rain can fall, so there can be moisture, so there can be life. All of that he does and we don't deserve a single drop of the rain. We don't deserve a single ray of the sunshine and yet he gives it to us. He's put the earth on a 23.5 degree axis so that we get four glorious seasons. Not so much here in Alabama, but some places get four glorious seasons. All of his grace, none of it deserved. What do we deserve? We deserve hell, we deserve judgment, and yet God shows his kindness to us. And he's going to show that kindness not just to believers, not to those who thank him, but to seven billion people on this green earth who will never recognize him, who will never thank him, who will go through every day of their lives worshiping and loving themselves, and yet he's kind. Jesus is saying, be like your dad. That's how he loves you love like that. 
And he loves so much, he sends his only son to die for the sins of the world so that anyone and everyone who will repent and believe will be not only given life here on this earth, but eternal life with him in heaven. That is the goodness and the generosity and the kindness of our Father. And listen, if you're a Christian, you have been adopted into his family, you have been born again, you've been given his nature so that you can love like that. Second Peter says we've been made partakers of the divine nature. John 3 says you must be born again, having the nature of the Father. If you're a Christian, you ought to be able to look in the mirror of God's Word and see the likeness of God in some ways in your life. If you had to look at a passage like this and say, okay, I'm not doing this perfectly, but by God's grace, I'm learning to love more than I loved a year ago. I'm learning to, to be more like Jesus in ways that I wasn't when I was converted. Listen, if you look in the mirror of God's Word and you see no resemblance to the divine character, it could be that you're not in His family. It could be that you're not in his family. If, however, you look in the mirror of his word and you say, yes, humbly, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this kind of love and this forgiveness and this grace beginning to grow in my life, take courage, beloved, to know that's God's reminder that, yes, you're his son. You belong to him. You need not fear. You can be assured that you are his child. To Christian, God calls us to this kind of love. This is the standard. The standard is not... Well, they did this, they said this to me, the, well, the liberals did this, so let's just do it back to them in the same way. I've heard that so much in the last five years. That's not the standard. We're called to live like Jesus, not like people who hate Jesus. We're called to love in this selfless, sacrificial, supernatural kind of way because we've been born again. Christian, how are you doing in that? Who is it that you need to make the conscious choice of today to say, I need to start loving this person or this group of people. Maybe there's a group out there in our country you're like, man, these, this group, they seem to be bad and I, I just can't stand them. You say, God, help me to love them. Help me to pray for them. Help me to bless them. Who in your life do you need to say, I'm going to start showing sacrificial love to? The needs that God has brought across your path. He, he's brought a need. He's given you resources. You say, God, by your grace, I'm going to do everything I can to help meet this need. The supernatural love. God, I want to live for your honor and your glory. Now today, if you're not a Christian, in other words, these things are not true in your life. Here's my plea to you. Turn to Christ today. Failure to live out these commands, it's not just failure, it's rebellion. It is sin. Sin that God must judge. Sin that can be atoned for through the cross of Jesus. So will you turn to him today so that we can love as Christ loved? Father, turn our eyes to Christ See his love?